You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If we withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, we see the connection between the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and a response to the resurrection. Jesus showed up on the scene with holes in his hands and a puncture in his side. Now, use your imagination for a moment. Tell me how would you feel if you were just like hanging out with family and friends And then all of a sudden, a seemingly healthy human being shows up, and he's got like holes probably in his wrists, says hands, holes there, and then in his side. And just everything seems to be cool. Like this kind of stuff does not happen. Nonetheless, The risen Lord knew the heart of his disciples. Before Jesus entered the room, there was fear. After Jesus entered the room, there was faith, peace, and a growing sense to respond to the miracle that was standing right in front of him. This this scene gives us insight into the hearts of the disciples, and it actually, and I hope we're going to see this this morning, it's going to give us insight into our own hearts. So from this passage, I want to make a couple observations just lay them out there, and then I'm going to look at the specific words of Jesus. So let me make the observations about Jesus' dramatic, dramatic entrance into this room where his disciples were hanging out. First, the Apostle John writes these verses wanting to bring attention to the sudden appearance of Jesus. That's obvious. John wants to make the reader aware that no one unlocked the door to let Jesus in. His resurrection, with his wounds still visible, transformed his old body into a glorious resurrected body. It's also clear that Jesus appears in the room, yet retaining these, his physical characteristics. It's stunning that no one let Jesus in. Jesus didn't have like a key or a wire pick to get in through the door. He showed up in front of these ragtag group of guys who had little motivation to continue the movement that Jesus had begun. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 
why the resurrection is so essential to Christianity and why Jesus' sudden appearance to the disciples would have been a spark for this global movement. Paul says this, and, and I read these verses, I think Paul is just, he's just being brutally honest about the importance of the resurrection. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, the preaching of Sean Powers, it's in vain. Don't bother. What are you doing? Go do something else. Let's get our lunches and go to the park right now. It's in vain. And then my faith is in vain as well. What's the point? No resurrection means no Christianity, no global movement. But Paul says in a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has raised. So we shall preach. We shall tell others. We shall respond. Therefore, the appearance of Jesus to his disciples was an absolute game changer. An absolute game changer. The resurrection of Jesus confirmed the scriptures. It disregarded all human logic. And it would eventually empower the disciples through the Holy Spirit with the faith to respond to the gospel. And here's another stunning truth. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. Like, think that. Pause. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. It's like mind-blowing to think about. Powerful. And several years ago, um, right after Easter, I've shared this story before, right after Easter, Shree sent me a text about a conversation between my two daughters, Chloe and Izzy. And Chloe uh, is my oldest daughter, and Izzy, my youngest. It, it went something like this. Izzy initially began by talking to mom. Uh, she said, Happy Easter, mom. And then Chloe chimes in, it's not Easter anymore. It's like two days after, and Izzy says, it's still Easter in my heart. Now, as a parent, you're just like, you knocked it out of the park, kid. You know, <laughs> it's a cute story. But the kernel of truth is powerful. The appearance of Jesus to his disciples, the very day he rose from the grave, set into motion the most profound and powerful movement this world has ever seen. The appearance of Jesus to his disciples began to turn the world upside down, Acts 17, 6. And God commands and invites his disciples to participate in his divine movement of the resurrected Christ. So the first observation is this. The resurrected Jesus shows up on the scene with his disciples. And then the, the presence of Jesus began, the move, began to move the needle in the hearts of his disciples. The resu resu resurrection of Jesus was not the figment of a few people's imagination. It was not the result of a few people hallucinating. It was not sorcery. It was a real, historical, and miraculous event. 
That's the first observation. Also notice the reason why the room was locked, which is my second observation. The room was locked because the disciples were fearful of the Jews, verse 19. Just a few days earlier, remember the disciples witnessed the death of Jesus. Their teacher, their master, their leader was executed by being hung on a cross. Now they were fearful about their own life. Fear kept them isolated into this locked room. So I got to pause and ask, do you blame the disciples for locking the door? It seems to me it was a prudent action to take. People are trying to kill you. Lock the door. You just, you know, maybe buy a few more locks for that door. I'm not sure I would have reacted any differently. And Jesus sees their fear. So he shows up and he sees the fear. He, he sees my fear. He sees your fear. So Jesus addresses the fear. Fear needs to be dealt with. Fear needs to be dealt with because fear can be crippling. I, I think here Jesus is touching a nerve when it comes to the disciples' inability and our inability to respond to the resurrection. One of, my primary, one, of the, one of the primary reasons why Christians do not respond is fear. For the first century disciple, for many Christians throughout the world today, in the 21st century, it's a fear of physical death and persecution. Just this morning, churches were bombed on Easter Day in Sri Lanka. Like, that's legitimate. Christians died. For you and me, it can be a fear of being thought differently, you know, by friends, neighbors, families, coworkers. Internal fear can have a wide-ranging effect on people. Fear can shut you down. Fear can make you irrational. Fear squeezes out your hope. Honestly, I don't need to list out the thousands of ways a person can become fearful. You, you all know what causes anxiety and fear in your own life. You know that. You can diagnose yourself in about two seconds, and you know. Jesus wants to set you free from fear. And one of and one way to be set free from fear is by tapping into the power of the resurrection. Whatever you fear, Jesus wants to address it this morning with his, it says in the text, peace. Jesus addresses the fear of the disciples with the word peace. Verses 19 and 20 are worth repeating. Jesus came and stood among them. Remember, they're fearful. The doors were locked. He came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad to also be, say, happy. Were happy when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, twice, Peace be with you. Jesus says twice, Peace be with you. Peace be with you is, is said at the moment he enters the room and at the moment he tells them to go. Peace 
be with you from Jesus to the disciples is the most appropriate greeting just hours after he rose from the dead. One commentator said it like this. Shalom, which is the uh, basically the language Jesus spoke. It means peace, Aramaic. Shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Shalom, accordingly, is supremely the Easter greeting. Not surprisingly, it is included along with grace in the greeting of every epistle of Paul in the New Testament. So when you read your New Testament epistles written by Paul, he says, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. So we've got to understand what Jesus is trying to say here because overcoming fear and responding to the resurrection hinges upon rightly knowing what Jesus means when he says, peace. This is what Jesus does not mean when he says, peace be with you. He's not wishing you a trouble-free life. He's not concerned with world peace the way that we tend to understand world peace. And Jesus isn't telling his disciples and us to find our own inner peace. So we can kind of like, Meditate on a mountain long enough and find it on our own. All those ways of seeking peace are shallow. It might last for a moment, but it won't be long before your fear comes back. You'll leave the you'll you know doing the meditating thing on the mountain. Once you get off the mountain, guess what? Life. Life that causes fear. The peace of God, which Jesus offers his disciples and us, pushes out the fear that can exist in our life. It is a faith-infused peace which clings to the resurrected Christ. This peace, or shalom, encompasses all the blessings of the kingdom. Just read your Bible and just hear God saying blessing and promise. This peace is a promise for every person who has faith in Christ. John records the words of Jesus early in his gospel. He says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now this is also key. Not as the world gives do I give you. So there's a difference between the peace the world is trying to offer and what Christ offers. And so he says, Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The shalom, or peace, offered by Jesus is himself. It is a peace that soothes an anxious soul. It is a peace that provides hope when everything seems hopeless. And we've all been there, right? I've been there. Like, how is this going to work out? I do not understand. Everything seems to be going wrong. And yet, in those moments, Jesus says, peace. Peace be with you. Hear me for a moment. We live in a world which preys on 
your fear and anxiety. Just praise on it. For example, what do you see when you turn on the evening news? When when, uh, Sharice and I were transitioning to Iowa, we stayed at my mother-in-law's house for several months, and they love watching their 10 o'clock news, or maybe it's 9 o'clock. It must be 9 o'clock because they go to bed earlier. And uh, it's amazing how when you watch the news, it's just one fear-inducing story after another. One tragic event. This happened, and then this happened. It's like, and then you talk about politics, and everything's, you know, blowing up. And it's just like, what is going on? One fear-inducing story after another. And maybe at the end, it's like a firefighter saving a kitten from a tree. Or a puppy is being rescued from the clutches of death. You know, just to throw in some, something soothing. But mostly, it's just fear-inducing stories. Bottom line, we all need peace to push out the fear which swirls all around our lives. In this post-resurrection narrative, Jesus is fulfilling his promise. He gives them peace, which the world does not know of, and it would cause the disciples to turn the world upside down. These disciples who are going to be looking into people's eyes who want to kill them. And yet, they have complete peace. He says, you have peace. Like, that's remarkable. A faith-filled peace removes the barrier of fear so that God can use you to display the gospel, to declare the gospel, share the gospel with your friends and family. So my second observation is this. The resurrected Christ offers his disciples an everlasting and eternal peace which pushes out every trace of fear. And this peace is only given to God's people. You're his disciple. You have that peace. Rest in that peace. Let's now look at the words of Jesus. So those are the two observations. Now I want to make a couple comments on the words of Jesus. In connection and flowing from the offering of peace to his disciples, Jesus calls his disciples to respond. And he asked his disciples to go and preach the gospel to the very people they were initially fearful of. That's verse 21. How we respond to the resurrected Christ is crucial. And this is where I was saying earlier before I began preaching. And this is a, provident, it's a providential moment on this Easter Sunday for us. Because we all know each other. We all hang out each other. We're going to go to the park and, and play around and do whatever and talk, right? This is appropriate for us to hear this morning. God is calling us out. He sends us out as followers of Christ. I, I remember hearing a sermon on global missions where um, Dr. Aiken, the president of the seminary I attended, he, he was preaching and he said, he said this, instead of asking why should I go, you need to ask why should I not go. And the implication being, what excuse do you have to not go and tell people about Jesus? And in that context, it was global missions, but that, the seminary made an interesting shift in that they started applying this to everyone who came to their institution, to the seminary. So if you're a teacher, they asked you the question, where are you going? To, to the administration, to every student. And they would give them these signs that say, I am going with a blank space. And they would like take a photo and put it on Instagram or whatever. And everyone filled in where they were going. 
How are you responding to the resurrected Christ? So I wonder if I were to hand out that sign, right? If I would just give you a sign that says, I'm going to, with a blank space, what are you going to put there? How would you respond? You have an answer. The fundamental question as it pertains to this morning, how have you responded to the resurrected Christ? The more I pondered the question for myself, I, I could not help but think of the biblical precedent being followed and what each local church needs to follow. What we read time and again in the scriptures are God's people responding to God's call. We read in the New Testament that responding to the resurrected Christ, it's not for like a select few people. It's not for like the appointed evangelist to go and tell people about Jesus. It's a culture within a church that we're all called to be a part of. So I want you to notice something significant, uh, theologically significant in verse 21. God did not ask his disciples to do something that he has not already done. Just as much as it was a part of the DNA of a Christian to be sent out to bring glory to God by proclaiming the gospel, it has always been a part of the eternal God's DNA to send for the sake of missions and glory. So don't miss this. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, verse 21. God the Father sent God the Son to be on mission. Just as Jesus responded to his Father, we now are called to respond to our Savior. From eternity past, Jesus knew he was always on mission to redeem his people by taking on humanity, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, although there was no right to kill him. And then as we celebrate today and every day, Jesus defeated death by rising from the dead, proving that death had no claim on his life. So I ask you and I ask me, have we responded to the resurrected Christ? I hope you can make the direct connection here. There is unity between the mission of Jesus and the mission of those who follow Jesus. Um, D.A. Carson, a theologian, he said this, and it was just really helpful. Jesus was sent by the Father into the world by means of the incarnation, his birth, with the end of saving the world. Now that Jesus' disciples no longer belong to the world, they must also be sent back into the world in order to bear witness along with the paraclete, which is the fancy way of saying Holy Spirit. Carson is right. Just as Jesus was sent into the world, we are now called into the world to bear witness about the resurrected Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, called to take his message forth to every school, coffee shop, mall, downtown, suburb, neighborhood, community, wherever. And we're on mission to declare the gospel to atheists, agnostics, Muslims, all those spiritually indifferent millennials that are all of a sudden coming into Des Moines. What do you believe? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? So I got something to tell you. They're there. And we're here. If there's a living soul in a specific locale with a pulse, we are called to go and share God's loving plan of redemption. Your response to the resurrection shows how much you've bought into God's plan to tell others about Christ. Like, have you bought into God's plan? 
this commentator said this, to the degree which individuals and churches are committed to mission, both locally and throughout the world, will be the measure of how godlike or godly you are. An individual growing in her discipleship includes becoming more aware of the need to respond to Christ. Jesus never intended that a person's personal response to the resurrection be separated from how a person lives in light of the resurrection. Even in our passage this morning, we read that Jesus continues to push the disciples to grow by putting away fear and replacing it with peace, right? So continue to grow while at the same time sending them out to proclaim the gospel. So you don't have to be perfect to do this. You don't have to have it all figured out to tell people about Jesus. Surely the disciples are still trying to figure it out as they were going. We are to grow in our relationship with God and in our understanding of the resurrection while we are going. And as we're going, God will continue to grow us. So the words of Jesus tell, tell us that we are sent out to tell others about the crucified and resurrected Christ. And as we grow and go, it is kind of the Lord to give us his peace and displace our fears, but he also does something else. The Lord does not want us disconnected from a relationship with him while we declare the gospel. Therefore, we are given the Holy Spirit as we respond. Here are verses 22 and 23. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The inclusion of verses 22 and 23 loudly highlights the role of of the entire Godhead when it comes to mission. We have already seen that the Father sent the Son to be on mission. Now the Son tells his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. So what are the implications of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and declare the gospel and make disciples? I'm going to share three implications quickly. The first might be obvious, but it's profound. God the Holy Spirit empowers every Christian to continually respond to the resurrected Christ. Here are a few verses found several chapters before our chapter in John. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. That's amazing. Like Jesus is saying, it's better for you that I take this hard road to the cross to rise from the dead so that you can feel and experience and sense and know all that the Holy Spirit has for you. And it's the Holy Spirit who will guide you, train you, lead you, care for you, be with you, sustain you, comfort you, bring you peace. The Holy Spirit illuminates to your Christian heart a greater love for your resurrected Savior. 
second implication of receiving the Holy Spirit is imparted authority given to the disciples by Jesus. In verse 23, it says, we have the power to forgive and not forgive. What this is alluding to, this is, this is amazing. What this is alluding to is that we are spokespeople for God, for God. This is quite an astonishing statement because of what we read in places like Luke 5. What's in Luke 5? Well, Jesus is performing miracles and he's forgiving sins and then you know, the Pharisees come and they're all bent out of shape because they're like, only God can forgive and they clearly didn't know that Jesus was God. But now, here we're saying, we have that same authority. Stunning. And when you couple that authority with God's mission to respond to the resurrected Christ, oh man. We have no authority of our own, but God divinely grants his authority through the Holy Spirit for the proclamation and advancement of the gospel. Therefore, we respond to the resurrection knowing that we have been given that authority. That was the second implication. One more. The third implication, which I find comforting, is that God ultimately does the heart work in non-Christians. So we're called to go. We're called to preach and share the gospel. But ultimately, God isn't saying, you need to do this. God does the work. He does the work in individuals. What we're called to do is to be faithful. Be faithful to what God is asking us to do. I've had moments in my life where um, it was clear God's like, you need to go share the gospel with this person in your class. And then you go share. And I went and shared. I just just feel like I need to tell you about the gospel. I try to do it in a respectful and tactful way. And I don't know what happened to that person. I have no idea. That's not on me. God does the work. We are called to be faithful as the Holy Spirit speaks to us and as we look at the scriptures. When you stop to think about it, this takes all the pressure off us. It's called to be faithful. Greater faith to, their, to respond. I always say, you don't need to change the world. Like, you need to be faithful to God by being on mission just right where you're at. Whatever you're doing, wherever you work, wherever you go, whoever you hang out with, right where you're at. Now, I'm I'm well aware, and again, this is the providence of God, that this Easter sermon now sounds like an evangelism sermon. I get that. I get it. But it is an evangelism sermon because Jesus rose from the dead. Let me say it like this. The way to respond to the skepticism of Celsus, my, my second century philosopher friend that I quoted earlier, the way to respond to Celsus is to tell others about the power of the resurrection. What we will find is that the power of the resurrection has the power to save and change. One of the greatest testimonies to the resurrection of Christ are a bunch of people changed because of faith in the resurrected Christ. So here is my prayer and hope for next Easter. We're just still, we're building brick by brick in this church. My prayer and hope for me and for you is that in our hearts would grow a greater desire to tell others about Christ. To tell others about the crucified and resurrected Christ.
and that in this church, a culture of evangelism would grow. We can do programs and we'll have events and that, all that's coming. That's fine. But more significantly and more importantly is that we see that growing within ourselves. And that is a prayer that will lead us into the months ahead where we focus more on how we respond to the resurrected Christ. But that's down the road. But for today, we need to continue to rejoice in what God has done in Christ, what he's done for us, what he's done for you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing two more songs together and just bring praise to Jesus. Like I said earlier, I'd rather worship with 20 people who are just passionate about singing to Jesus than 200 who are just like, what are we doing here? I don't want to be in that room. I want to be in this room.